I'm Don Tess, better known as the Don of Beer. And I'm M. Sauter, better known as Pints and Panels. Welcome to episode 32 of the All About Beer podcast. Every two weeks, we talk with leading experts and take a deep dive into one topic in beer. This week on the show, we're going to talk about diastatic issues in beer. I, as an Uber nerd, am really looking forward to this. But first, visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And this show is supported by listeners like you, so please visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. M, do you remember there was a big kerfuffle a few years ago about diastatic yeast strains? I do, of course. There was a lawsuit and everything. It was uh, yeah, quite a to-do. It was quite a to-do, right? <laughs> and in recent years, uh, there's even a talk about the diastatic power of hops. I know. It's insane. Who knew that hops could break down complex sugars and make them available for fermentation? Wild. Mind blown. Well, uh, we're going to learn about those things today. Why did that beer can explode? Why do I taste diacetyl in this beer? These could be diastatic issues, and we're going to learn all about it. I am sitting on the edge of my seat. <laughs> uh, if you would like to help support the All About Beer podcast, please reach out to podcast at allaboutbeer.com. Speaking of supporting the show, here is a word from our sponsors. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCo.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. Bryn Keenan is a biochemist by training and a fermentation scientist by trade. Her experience in brewing QC includes building microbiological, sensory, and analytical programs for left-hand brewing and inland island yeast laboratories. Bryn started Grist Analytics to bring her big brewery QC tools to craft breweries by making data entry, visualization, and analysis easy. She now helps breweries across the world turn production data into actionable information. Bryn is passionate about good beer, rock climbing, and building community. Welcome to the show, Bryn. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, okay, so first, in extremely layman's terms, can yes, you explain please. what? <laughs> can you explain? For, what, explain it for uh, people who failed chemistry. Because one uh, of the people on this, <laughs> on this may have failed chemistry. Yes, uh, can you <laughs> that is me. Me, I failed chemistry. Diastaticus is, and why it can be a problem, uh, and what makes yeast diastatic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in 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 layman's terms, so there's there's classic brewing strains uh, that that brewers normally use for ales and lagers, and those yeast strains can um, digest certain sugars, and other sugars they can't digest. So when a brewing strain can digest a sugar, it turns it into CO two and alcohol, and at some point it gets to the point where it, it can't use the kinds of sugars that are left in the beer anymore and fermentation is done. Um, it's stable. Alcohol and CO2 aren't being produced anymore and it's packaged and it's sent out into the world. And the difference between those strains and diastatic strains or diastaticus is that diastaticus can produce something that breaks down sugar that normal yeast can't usually digest and turn into CO2 and alcohol into a form that it can use. So sugar that normal yeast strains wouldn't be able to digest and turn into the byproducts of fermentation, diastatic strains can because they produce an enzyme that breaks those sugars down. Uh, so they can, with the same um, base so that with the same wort, they can produce a beer that's higher in CO2 and higher in alcohol. Okay, thank you for that. Emma, is, is that good? Okay, is it similar to like Britannomyces then? Because Brett can break down, I know that's yeast, it's not the enzyme, but they can break down bigger sugars. 
Was it similar yeah. to that? Exactly. Yeah, there are I tons know. of different. Look at, look at me. Sorry. I was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. That that's great. There. Yeah. There. There are different types of yeast strains out there, and they can break down different types of sugars, which like impacts how dry the beer tastes, basically. Got it. Okay. Yes, that made a lot of sense. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. So. Um, the, a, a few years ago, it was kind of in the news that there was this problem. Um, you know, why is this a problem? Why is yeast continuing to ferment? Like, you know, I like alcohol. So what's wrong with fermentation? That sounds pretty good to me. Why, why is diastatic <laughs> is a problem? Yeah. So we've been using diastatic strains for a long time and other strains that, that, you know, produce a bunch of alcohol as I mentioned, Pertanomyces. Uh, the issue is that when you're brewing a beer that uses one of those strains on purpose, like a Saison or something, you give it the amount of time that it needs to finish in tank, which is usually much longer than, say, an IPA. Um, and, and that's totally okay. You, you give it the time it needs, it finishes out, um, it's got specific characteristics associated with diastaticus, people drink it, it's awesome. Like being super dry. Yeah, like being super dry and phenolic um, and more estery or more fruity. Yeah, they're, they're great yeast strains to use for, for saisons. Uh, and, and when it becomes a big issue is when you're using a normal ale strain, that's much different. It's less fruity. Um, it ends up more fuller bodied since it's got more residual sugar at the end. Um, it's not supposed to have any phenolic flavors to it. And if you get a diastaticus contamination into a beer like that, uh, the first issue is that it just has a bunch of flavors that you don't want that are normally associated with saisons and that IPA. And the second issue is that, you know, fermentation for IPAs is usually really fast, while fermentation for diastaticus is normally quite slow. So you think the beer is done because the bulk of it ferments out really quickly while diastaticus is still in there, slowly churning away that sugar that's left. So um, the beers can look finished when it's actually not, and it gets packaged, and that yeast strain keeps fermenting once that beer has been packaged, which leads to a bunch of different issues. And a bunch of different issues are... <laughs> yeah, so uh, there you package a beer, and you carbonate it. So it's at, at the carb level that you want to, and it's at a safe carb level, um, CO, the amount of CO2 in the beer. Uh, and if there's still yeast in there that's fermenting, it's going to continue to produce CO2, which over carbonates the package. So in the case of bottles, you can get exploding bottles, which is uh, super dangerous. And in the case of cans, you can get deformed cans from overcarbonation and breaking cans. So it, it's a pretty big safety issue out in the market. Um, and alcohol goes way up in can, which the TTB um, audits. So those are those are a couple of those big issues. Yeah, because you can only have what a 0. 0.4 or 0. 0.04 or I don't something really 0. low 0. 0.5. I think it's, uh, in America, I thought it was 0. 0.4. Oh, maybe. Um, differential. So if you're selling a beer that you say is 4% and you have this problem and then it's 6%, like, yeah, you are you can get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I think they're cracking down on that stuff too. So you could always get in trouble and now yeah. the trouble is getting more and more serious. Would pasteurization stop this? If you had- Yeah, so it okay. would- it, it, and it depends on where the pasteurization is happening and where the contamination is happening. So if contamination is happening in the fermenter, then pasteurization would absolutely help. Uh, if the contamination is happening during packaging, then it depends what kind of pasteurization. So flash pasteurization is usually um, the best kind of pasteurization to use for beer. It impacts flavor the least but it's prior to canning. So there's still an opportunity for that contamination to happen. Um, tunnel pasteurization, when canned products and bottled products go through a tunnel pasteurizer would definitely pretty much eliminate the possibility of diastaticus issues in packaged product. Uh, but it, those aren't usually the kinds of pasteurization that, 
that people are looking to do. And if you still had the phenols and you were getting other um, byproducts, you're going to still get those even if you're pasteurizing. So your cans won't explode, but you're still going to have some flavors of like, if I got an amber ale and it had like a lot of phenols in it, I would be like, um, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, well, this beer hasn't exploded in my face, but yeah. it's still not an amber ale. <laughs> mm. Got it. Uh, and how quick can that happen? Like, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a studious, uh, beer lover. So I try to drink my beer fresh, but like, are we talking within a month or, or a year that, carbonation might be even if my can hasn't exploded um it the carbonation is going to be funny the tastes are going to be funny maybe there's going to be diacetyl in it because of the extra fermentation or how quickly does any of this happen yeah it depends on the concentration of diastaticus in the beer and the kinds of sugars that are left so you have if you have kind of a perfect storm of high diastaticus levels and a lot of um larger change sugars like starch left in the beer then and it's and you keep it warm it could happen in days so it it's really dependent on uh, how you store it is probably like the biggest thing with that so either if you've stored it warm or if the um the the distributor stored it warm or the truck that carried it from point a to point b was stored warm it can actually be a really massive issue very quickly Mm. um so how do breweries detect this? How do they know they have a problem? It sounds like it can be, I guess I'm sort of confused, like if it can be so dramatic and so fast, how do breweries not know they have a problem? And and maybe to be less harsh about it, how do breweries <laughs> stay on top of this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you think about it, so, okay, I said temperature was a huge element of of it being a really big issue. So you're kind of at the perfect point to detect this issue after you've canned it. So at that point, you've dropped out most of your other yeast, but diastaticus may still be in solution. You have a bunch of unfermented sugar. Um, If you introduced any oxygen to the package product, when this happens, that yeast can multiply. So now you have a higher concentration of yeast and it's more active because the beer is being stored warm uh, and it's got a competitive advantage because it can digest this sugar and it kind of spirals out of control. But a lot of those things aren't conditions in the brewery. So the beer is usually stored warm, usually stored without a lot of exposure to oxygen. Once primary fermentation is over, the normal yeast strain is done, it's it's crashed down to temperature. So it's pretty stable looking when it's in the brewery. So you're not seeing like the effects of diastaticus necessarily in the fermentation curves in the brewery. Um, and if it's at a high concentration, you'll probably smell it. I mean, it's it's very detectable. Uh, so if it's at a high concentration, you know, it's 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 pretty easy to catch at the brewery. But if it's a low concentration, it might not have affected the aroma of the beer yet post-fermentation, but still at a high enough concentration that it'll be an issue in packaged product. So um, like micro testing aside, it can be really tough to pick up in the brewery um, if it's at a if it's not at a crazy high concentration and if it's at a crazy high concentration it's probably been an issue at a low concentration for a while oh um so i guess you know like some of these yeast strains are hundreds of years old craft brewings you know decades old uh, how why did this issue rear its head you know, several years ago, and then seems to like, I don't seem to really hear that much about it anymore. So why did it kind of, why did the issue kind of die away? Like have, have brewers caught onto it and now they are having better QAQC or, or what's going yeah. on? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, it, there's really a lot to that question. Uh, the other side of your, your last question, I think kind of feeds into this one. Why is it so hard to detect before a few years ago? So we've known, yeah. And Diastaticus has been around for a long time and scientific literature has been on around on diastaticus since the 50s. So it's it's not a new thing by any means, but we didn't have great ways of detecting it uh, in the QC lab uh, that were widely adopted until after it became this huge, huge issue and everybody was talking about it. It's actually 
a bit difficult to detect for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, it's very genetically similar to normal yeast strains. So the PCR that people were doing before diastaticus became this huge thing was not detecting this variation because it looks so genetically similar to typical ale strains. So that's that's one element. Uh, the other one is, is one of the easier ways to detect diastaticus is with LCSM media, which really wasn't popular yet before uh, it became a, a big issue and we didn't know a lot about it, but it has a ton of limitations to it. It detects a bunch of strains that aren't actually diastatic. Um, it doesn't detect some strains that are diastatic. We don't actually really even know why diastaticus can grow on LCSM. Um, so yeah, it's, it's actually kind of a tough one from a micro testing standpoint. So I think that was probably why everybody was so afraid of it for a while is it can have these really horrible consequences in the market. And we just didn't know a lot about how to detect it and what concentrations were going to be an issue, um, when it was happening at the same time, craft beer is taking off and everybody's using these cool new Saison strains and doing funkier stuff and mixing clean beer with uh, wild beer and kind of like ha mixing all these yeast strains uh, in the same cellar. So it, uh, I think the problem really became amplified uh, through the course of like the popularization of craft beer since we started using those strains more for production. Oh, I see. Um... M, did you have any questions? I do actually. So if I'm a small brewery with like no lab, you know, it's just me and a couple of my, you know, my coworkers and this problem arises or I have a small facility, like, do you have any tips or suggestions of how small breweries or even home brewers can manage yeast? Is it just clean, clean, clean and making sure your yeast health is good? I mean, or are there any tips or tricks that people who are small brewers or home brewers should know. Yeah, absolutely. I think good, good cleaning is definitely number one. So you should never have a contamination. I mean, yeast really shouldn't even be contaminated with anything, much mm -hmm. less something that could, could spoil a beer. And that stuff is totally avoidable with good cleaning practices. So on the home brewing side, um, good cleaning practices for sure, hundred percent. And then on the industrial brewing side, again, it really shouldn't be an issue if the brewery's got good SIP and CIP and, and cleaning practices. So getting those practices audited, uh, making sure that there are no um, like dead legs and the piping, making sure that uh, you've done the calculations on the length of your piping and the speed of your pumps to make sure you're getting enough force to actually clean your piping, um, regular audits on um, your rinse water after CIPing to make sure there's nothing alive in there. And even if you don't have an in-house micro program, you can validate that stuff by taking a sample and sending it into a lab every now and then. So maybe you can't afford to test uh, on every beer, but you can probably afford to send a couple samples a few times a year and, and make sure that, that you're cleaning your tanks properly. Um, you mentioned, you know, sometimes you can smell it and I think you're referring to like phenolic aromas or whatever it, it, are, are, are all, are all diastatic strains, saison strains. Uh, if I am a home brewer that only makes IPAs and never use saison strains, maybe this isn't a concern for me or are there uh, diastatic strains that, you know, in, in all, in all styles. Yeah, there are some diastatic strains that are POF negative, which means that they, they wouldn't produce phenolic off flavors. So yeah, you're, you're not quite safe by uh, yeah. just looking for phenolic off flavors. Everybody sure. should care is really what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah. Everybody yeah. should care. And there okay. are some, you know, this is like kind of a niche thing, but I guess to the to the advice that I'd give a smaller brewer and a home brewer too, there's a really specific fermentation curve that these strains often exhibit where they'll go through primary fermentation really quickly from your main yeast strain 
And then you'll see this long trickling fermentation at the end that never really settles out. And that's pretty classic diastaticus. Mm -hmm. Ooh, okay. So when you say long trickling, like if I were to take a, a gravity reading today and then 24 hours later, take another gravity reading, gravity reading, will it have changed in 24 hours or are we talking weeks or? Yeah, like maybe, uh, it usually it oh. changes it, like it'll change by like point one from day to day Play-Doh. Uh, okay. it, but sometimes it'll be stable for a couple of days and it'll drop point one Play-Doh the third oh. day. Wow. Yeah. Like very, very slow. Okay. Are there any other hallmarks of diastaticus that people should be looking for if it's not phenolics? Like, is there, I guess it would be like diacetyl would show up again places like later in the firm or am I like, or are there, are there other hallmarks? Yeah, that, that might people... happen from, yeah, like that. Yeah. that And not, yeah. Like not the same way that a contamination would evolve diacetyl, but like if you have diastaticus and it goes through a growth phase in the can, you'd probably get some diacetyl from that first, like it produces diacetyl during that growth phase. So you might get some diacetyl. Um, so I don't usually associate that as being like the biggest tell aromatically. Um, what else? Yeah, gushing out in the market. Like when, yeah, customer complaints that have anything to do with like esters or, or aromatic compounds that don't belong there or gushing beers. I mean, gushing can come from a bunch of different stuff, but uh, that's usually a pretty common one that you'll hear for diastatic contaminations just from that overcarbonation. Uh, yeah, because it's going to keep, it's going to keep making carbonation. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. Yeah, I forgot to mention too, I was just working with a brewery that, um, didn't have a micro program off the ground and, and they were really worried about diastaticus contaminations. So I had them just take packaged cans and bottles and put them in an incubator for a few days after it was um, packaged and then check alcohol and CO2 and make sure alcohol and CO2 were the same as when they packaged them. So that can be a cheap way to test for these um, over attenuating strains without a without a lab at a brewery too. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, getting them nice and the trunk of your car, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> store beer, like yes. the bulk of American store beer. And then yes. in the trunk <laughs> of your car in, in August in Texas and well, see what happens. <laughs> I have heard of breweries that will take um some beers from each canning run and like stick it next to their boiler. If you mm, basically yeah. do a, yeah. a hot for a hot, bleh, force it to be hot, I guess. Is that effective? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. We did that. Um, yeah. I've done that several times too. Cause it, there, there's not a ton of space in an incubator. So even if you, even if you got one, it can be more like less annoying to, to use the boiler room or stick it next to the boiler to get it up to temp. Just put it in a box first because you don't want that can exploding next to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, okay, so um, my understanding is that uh, these diastatic yeast strains have a specific gene, which I think, and I'm surprised we actually haven't used the, the phrase yet, but STA1, I believe mm -hmm. is the gene. Um, and I understand that there are some yeast companies that are taking diastatic yeast strains and removing or somehow editing, I'm not a geneticist, obviously, somehow they can take the STA1 out of otherwise uh, diastaticus strains. Um, what are your thoughts? Does that actually solve the problem? Does that create other problems? Uh, false confidence? Anything like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, to be honest, I don't know that much about it, but I mean, that seems like a great idea. <laughs> if you're uh, if you're on board with genetically modified yeast in brewing, it seems like a, a great solution to a problem. Um, no, I don't, I don't think that would be a false sense of confidence, especially since these days we have a lot of great ways of testing if it can actually, you know, get through starch. So as long as, as long as they're, they're being tested afterwards, that seems like a really cool solution. Okay. Um, awesome. Em, did you have any last questions? I learned so much because I, again, failed chemistry. I'm going to keep telling everybody that. I'm going to mention it like 50 <laughs> times in this episode. Um, 
and I really struggle with different yeast strains and whatnot. And the fact that there's an issue out there that like, I'm not super known about. And like, it's almost like it's, it's like silent, but deadly, not like that's, that's a gross <laughs> fart thing, but, uh, you know, <laughs> but it feels like it could be, if I, I ran a brewery, I was a home brewer, like this could be a huge problem. And then it also is a problem for customers because, you know, you're going to get this great beer that you love and then, ah, this isn't, this isn't right. Or, you know, I, I've stepped on an exploding bottle in the middle of the night, um, that's really? very painful. Yes, I have. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, don't store your bottles. I this was when I was just getting into beer. I stored uh, some bombers on their sides, and then stepped into it in the middle of the night on my oh. way to the bed. Yeah. So uh, don't uh, don't do don't store beer on sides. <laughs> <laughs> so many takeaways from yes, today's a podcast. Lot, a lot of a lot of takeaways. <laughs> don't don't store beer on their sides. You know, make sure to keep your beer refrigerated. Um, and it's something you should, you know, if, if you're a customer and you have a beer that you aren't, that you're like, huh, this is odd. Please tell the brewery. Yes, I agree. 100% uh, tell the brewery, you know, it's, it's important. It's not, it could be a, a total, it could be bad draft lines or it could be a ton of other things, but breweries yep. want feedback if their beer. If they care. Yeah. If they care, they want feedback. And so yep. I think this is a good episode. Good takeaway is. Alert your local brewery or brewery if you think something is a mess. So. I, I guess I will lead. That does make me think of one last question for you, Bryn. Uh, do you have any idea? Like, I think a lot of um, uh, consumers are afraid to raise a fuss. They don't want to seem difficult. Uh, I think sometimes they're also uncertain of their own knowledge. And so don't want to say, oh, I think this beer is off. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, so do you have any sense of how big of a problem this is? So if I'm a consumer and I think I might have a problem, am I probably right or am I probably wrong? Well, I feel like if you're a consumer and you have a thought about your beer, there's there's no there's no reality in which that thought's not valuable to the brewery. Even if you, I think, I think sometimes like we think that we need to be an expert on something to provide feedback, but from doing quality control for breweries for a really long time, it's so much more endearing and helpful for somebody to send an email and say, Hey, this, I think this wasn't quite right. And here's what it tasted like, just so you know, rather than somebody supposing what was wrong with it to us, like it, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's it's actually way less annoying for someone <laughs> to come in thinking they don't know what exactly is wrong with it than uh than knowing all the answers. So oh, it, yeah, it 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 makes us all better to get that feedback. Um and you know, even if you even if you I'm I'm all for sending feedback on the contact form for breweries rather than like a Google review or an untapped Unta review. I was going like to say you... untapped uh. is, a, is the is the the QAQC essentially de facto. Because um, I've worked at breweries where X amount of bad reviews that you would look at X amount of bad reviews and you'd be like, okay, there's an issue with this bar or this run. Yeah. Um, and that was a, a untapped can be a very good way to like alert, but it's also it's just, you know, you're, fire. it also is, yeah, because you're also <laughs> like telling everybody except really the brewery, I didn't like this. Right. This could be an issue when you're not, you know, email, a nice polite email, like, hey, I had a beer at this place at this time. Um, yeah. It tasted like this. Like, I, I, you know, I've had this beer before and it's not what I'm used to. And like, breweries want to, you know, make sure that they're putting out the best, I would hope, the best beer possible. And so, Write write your email. Write your email to the brewery. Don't you know? Yeah, Google. Yeah, one star Google reviews. Not gonna. <laughs> I do like that, Bryn. I I want to yeah. thank you for that. I think yes. if if uh, if nothing else from this episode, that one takeaway mm -hmm. that that QAQC will actually appreciate um, helpful comments that are not know it all. -y. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's great. So thank yep. you for that, Bryn. Um, yes. Bryn, uh, how can people keep up to what you're doing, uh, social media handles, website, that sort of stuff? Yeah, awesome. We're Well, I, I own a software company called Gris Analytics now, but um, 
tracks production data for craft breweries. So if you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at Grist Analytics. Um, we've got some good cooking up good memes. We've got some educational material that we put out pretty often. Uh, if you want to get on our newsletter, we're gristanalytics.com. And basically I am Grist Analytics. So <laughs> I, I don't really have a personal handle. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you, Brent. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for joining us today. This was really very uh, enlightening about yeast and all sorts of stuff. So I we appreciate you it. Could pass chemistry now, Em. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll ask Mrs. Duvall, but I don't think so. Mrs. Duvall, uh, if you're out there, yeah, give her another I, chance. I think she pro- she may listen to this podcast actually. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll ask her. Awesome. Thank you, Bryn. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. All about beer is back. And we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCode.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. Tom Nielsen began his professional brewing career at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in 2004 after obtaining a Bachelor of Science in Food Science and Technology from Rutgers University in New Jersey. Tom was the initial hire in the newly minted Research and Development Department at Sierra Nevada. For nearly 20 years now, Tom has been highly involved in all aspects of brewing quality, method and process development, and brewing innovation. In January 2014, Tom began building the Raw Materials Department at Sierra Nevada, focusing primarily on procurement, development, and quality of hops and malts and new product development. In July 2018, Tom added the Research and Development Department to his Sierra Nevada Brewing Company management responsibilities. Tom serves as Sierra Nevada's representative to the American Malting Barley Association, the Brewing and Malting Barley Research Institute, the German Society of Hop Research, the USA Hop Research Council, as an ex-president, and the Hop Quality Group as technical chair. Welcome to the show, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here, Don. Thank you for having me. Um, So we are talking about diastatic issues, and specifically, uh, we wanted to talk to you about diastatic issues around hops. So can you kind of explain what the issue is? And and I don't know if uh, hop creep is a common term, but does that does hop creep apply to all diastatic issues around hops or is that just one aspect or I guess hop creep 101 is I guess what I'm asking you. So I guess, you know, by diastatic as you mean um, just the drying out of the beer as much as possible. So, you, you know, some, some yeast strains have the ability to, to ferment out uh, higher sugars Um you know, polymers of glucose and so on and so forth into fermentable form, thereby drying the beer out. And in hops, the diastaticus is is largely an amylase enzyme like you would get from malt, um, particularly during the mashing step in brewing, right? Just right. to be clear, that's how you're defining diastaticus. Yes. Right. Okay. And, and, and I guess I yeah. understand hops have some of this power to i don't know if it's actually yes the freshening power of the hop yeah (laughs) very well well aware of it um so it is true uh hops when they're added cold side post boil um have the ability to break down uh polymers of 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 carbohydrates so basically higher sugars things that typically typical yeasts Typical, uh, 
Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeasts will not ferment, so they won't touch them. Um, so, and these have have largely been identified as amylase type okay. uh, enzymes, uh, not dextrinases. Um, so there's there's a whole slew of different enzymes that will break down these higher sugars, uh, and the ones that are typically found in hop, to my knowledge, and per the latest research, uh, published research are that they are amylase enzymes. Um, so they're there. They are there. Um, and when you dry hop, they start acting on the the carbohydrates or polymers of glucose that you leave behind, um, you know, through the brewing process, things that you probably want uh, for mouthfeel um, and certainly non-fermentables, you know, things that will not uh, be fermented and uh, increase alcohol, CO2, and other things. So dry hopping typically occurs, you know, midway or at the end of fermentation, at which point you're reinfusing this this liquid, this fermenting wort or beer uh, with fermentables, uh, with glucose largely, uh, and maltose, and, and you're kind of breaking down, um, you know, a those higher sugars into the fermentable types. So you're basically giving more food to the yeast and you're starting a whole nother, you know, uh, if fermentation's already done, you have the potential to, to kind of quasi start, restart a fermentation almost as if you're doing like a bottle conditioning or something like that, or a secondary conditioning. Mm -hmm. So yes, this is happening. Uh, it, it, you know, I think um, diastaticus is, you know, certainly a term, that you can use to describe it. I think a lot of us describe it as hop creep uh, because it's kind of a multi-dimensional description of what's going on. I think that creep, uh, that word creep can be applied to increasing alcohol and increasing carb carbonation. So, and it slowly creeps up. Um, and certainly probably even with the flavor impact, uh, you have diacetyl that can, can creep up and then it takes a long time for it to go go away so it kind of just creeps forever so my, my sense is that's how that term got popularized mm -hmm. um because there's this slow kind of creeping effect uh to the fermentation if the enzymes from the hops have have um you know have been activated and have created more fermentable sugar substrate for for the yeast and and for whatever's in there to act on. And if it gets bad enough, will will there be enough CO2 that it could actually cause cans to rupture or things like that? Um, I think that is a, a minor risk. Um, and it's been written about quite a bit. If you do fully break down all the dextrins, all the non-fermentable carbohydrates uh left over in a beer and then ferment those all, you could have very high. Uh, CO2 content and internal pressure in the cans and and bottles. Um, I mean, for the integrity of of the glass or the aluminum um, should withhold quite high CO2 volumes. But if, if there's an imperfection, say in the glass, which there there could be, um, you know, you could have an event uh, where you know you have an exploding bottle. It's actually not too uncommon in in home brewing where there's a lot of uh, sugar added back to the bottles uh, for carbonation step uh, and the bottle conditioning procedure. Um, so that's not completely rare in in the home brewer circle to have exploding bottles. Yeah. Um, but in trade, in a commercial pro product, that should be a non-starter, really. So we look at that very closely. Okay. Um, but it will. It will. The CO two will increase uh, if if there's hop creep occurring and there's some active. Uh, or if there's some yeast carried over into the package, yes. Um, and then how bad, and obviously I know it will depend on how much dextrins are left in the finished beer before hop creep starts, but like, let's say we have a 5% beer and the alcohol creeps up, like, could we, like, it's presumably not going to 10%, like how bad of a problem no, no. Uh, could it, could it be? I mean, you could uh, go from being in specification for alcohol. So the spec for alcohol is plus minus 
0.3% ABV. So say if you have a 5% beer, it can actually be legally between 47 and 5.3. It can go above the 5.3 if you start at the 5, um, theoretically, um, which is a problem because all of a sudden you have um, beer that is out of spec and you know there's there's some risk to having that out on the shelf just from a TTB compliance uh, point of view. Okay. Uh, so in addition to, uh, I guess, alcohol creep, then it also causes, uh, possibly causes um, more sensory problems like diacetyl or, or, or other fermentation byproducts. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. The one I'm really personally sensitive to is acetaldehyde. Um, okay. I can usually judge, well, I can usually pick up uh, what I perceive to be some some minor hop creep when a beer has a little bit of acetaldehyde. If I know if it's a um, you know a double IPA or it's been dry hopped a couple times, uh, and I pick up a little bit of acetaldehyde, which to me would be like a kind of a pumpkin guts type of note. Um, that's probably you know that's that's the clue to me that there's a little bit of hop creep happening in this in this package. Um, now hop creep can be very pronounced very quickly, or it can be very slow and drag on for months after packaging oh. too. So there's, there's kind of a spectrum of, uh, hop creep that, that can occur. I think the, you know, in extreme would be when you get basically a whole nother fermentation starting late into your tank cycle and you get a diacetyl spike and it just hangs up there high. And you basically have beer that you can't sell because the diacetyl is too high. Um, another scenario is that the beer is fine all throughout the tank cycle and you package it, you filter or package it. But over the course of its lifetime in, in the can or the bottle or the keg, I guess, if you do back pitch a little bit of yeast, you could have this very slow, like very slow kinetic um, creep going on for months and months. Uh, so both of those can sort of happen and, 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 and will happen if you have, you know, dry hopping and a little bit of yeast uh, in the same system. Right. Uh, and you wouldn't even necessarily have to back pitch yeast. I mean, it could be just that if the beer's unfiltered sure. or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. It won't take much yeast to, to get it to go. Uh, Em, do you have any questions? I'm, I'm nerding out with Tom here. No, so. no, well, you are a big nerd, <laughs> so that makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask about, I know they're different, but maybe, cause I just want a little more clarification. What's the difference between biotransformation and hop creep? Cause those are two phrases or words that get bandied about a lot in industry circles. Mm. And I'd love a little yeah. clarification of the difference between both of them. Well, um, they are quite different different and i wouldn't i wouldn't myself think of them in the same sphere like the venn diagrams don't really overlap much there um although i guess they they, they could but um i think it's best to think of them differently before you start okay. kind of putting them together so biotransformation is basically how the yeast and and the um the metabolism of the yeast or the fermentation really impacts uh, mostly flavor molecules or flavor active molecules in the hop itself. Okay, so it, there's already a fermenting, you know, a media where it's fermenting, there's already wort, there's already plenty of sugar. You don't really need hop creep for biotransformation to happen. So biotransformation is when the yeast will metabolize uh, certain components in the hops and liberate flavor active molecules. So one example are are the thiol compounds, right? Everybody talks about thiols these days. So polyfunctional thiols are present in high concentration, but in a bound form, actually when they're bound to different um, peptides or proteins. And at some point, uh, the yeast may go after uh, these proteins just to for its own uh, metabolism and kind of free up the flavor molecule, you know, the grapefruit or tropical note um, that is bound to that protein or peptide, um, thereby making it flavor active. 
another common biotransformation, I don't know if common is the right word, another popular biotransformation pathway uh, involves when the yeast takes hold of some of the, the monoterpenes, uh, the monoterpenic alcohols, and biotransforms them into a similar molecule that has an even more potent flavor and aroma. Um, and this is is very well researched um, with the molecule geraniol. Um, and geraniol can be changed a little bit by the yeast uh, to create something like citronellol. Um, and then there's a whole pathway down there. And citronellol is more potent than geraniol. And it, it's got, you know, more bright um, sensory aspects to it. So those are the two most commonly uh, thought of biotransformation pathways. Hop creep, you know, if it happens later on in fermentation, when this has already happened early in fermentation, is just another, you know, maybe a little bit more biotransformation is occurring. Um, maybe a lot. I don't really, I don't really, I can't really cite too many research projects I've done or in the literature that that directly correlate uh, hop creep post or secondary or even tertiary fermentation to more biotransformation. Usually hop creep is thought of as a negative aromatic event uh, where you get a lot of diacetyl and acetaldehyde. You almost get just get the beginning uh, components of a stressed fermentation because not a lot of nutrients are there. Um, you know, you just get a little bit of sugar. You just get the yeast to kind of wake up a little bit and 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 produce some some metabolites that if you had a nice, strong, complete fermentation, it would naturally uptake those, those negatives and, and, you know, and get them down to lower, um, lower levels, acceptable levels. So uh, uh, I'm not a brewer and I'm not a scientist, but as you were uh, explaining that, I was thinking, you know, in the biotransformation, if the yeast is, is freeing the thiol by taking the protein away, is that, is that during the yeast growth stage that it that it wants the protein? And then if that's the case, then because there's so little yeast when the hop creep is happening, yeah. maybe it wants to grow, maybe it wants the protein, maybe it does create more biotransformation because it wants the protein. Question mark? <laughs> yeah, no, it could. You're exactly right. But there's not going to be enough there to to create a complete fermentation. Okay. So my point is you're just going to like have like a stalled unhealthy fermentation with a lot of diacetyl, a lot of acetaldehyde, probably H2S, which is the eggy note. So those are all negatives. Yeah. Um, you know, at that, at that stage, the liquid or the beer, it doesn't have everything it needs to really, you know, there's no oxygen. Uh, there's all these things that, you know, really are required to have a, to start a fermentation, uh, off in a healthy, positive way. And then you got to take it to completion to have right. all the positive effects. Yeah. Right, right. Um, when it all happens over the course of two months, very slowly, it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's not ideal from a commercial standpoint. Right. And maybe <laughs> after those two months, you'll have the best beer that has ever been made. Uh, but certainly when you're trying to, you know, keep, uh, thousands and thousands of consumers happy with a stable product and a consistent product. That's not the way to go. Right. Um, so hops have been used in beer for centuries now. So why did this issue kind of come up only relatively recently, like just a few years ago is when I first heard about it. There was a paper published in 1896 in the UK uh, that it was a really well-written paper. It's amazing to read some of the scientific literature of that era and how well written and researched it was. So this paper by, oh, is it Horace? No, Horace Grant is power forward for the Chicago Bulls in the 90s and 2000s. <laughs> Horace something. Ah, uh, Jesus, okay. I forget his name. It's so silly of me that I don't remember the name. But anyway, um, really cool uh, paper written in 1896 that like outlines hop creep in detail. Um, it, so they, they discovered it in the UK when they were shipping a lot of beer, um, you know, to India, uh, with the dry hops in the casks. So the original in India IPA, um, 
And then again, in the mid 40s, 1940s, there was another researcher uh, that published it, published on hop creep uh, again. Um, and I think that that researcher's name was Janicky. Um, so, you know, it seems like every 50 years or so the topic comes up this time around. We won't we won't <laughs> we won't kind of let it lie. Um, I you know, there have been probably 40 or 50 research papers, maybe written on hop creep in the last 10 years. Um, but I really attribute um, Allagash Brewing Company from making rediscovering the phenomenon. Uh, they're a company that is really hyper-focused on yeast health uh, and they have really good fermentation metrics that they that they use in their brewery to make you know their 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 white. They started dry hopping for the first yeah. time like 12, 13 years ago, and they immediately noticed something was wrong. Oh. And they threw up a bunch of red flags because nothing was making sense and their fermentability and their RDFs were off and their alcohols were off. And they're like, what is happening here? And they got really excited about it. And it really got the whole industry uh, excited about it. I think Bell's jumped on and uh, early and, and uh, did some interesting work. OSU and the Shellhammer teams uh, and his students over the years have published excellent work on hop creep and continue to do so. Uh, I think in the latest ASBC, um, journal uh they published a nice paper on hop creep um we so i started at sierra nevada in 2004 and we only saw a little bit of extra fermentability in celebration ale um mm. and a little bit of like co2 going up a little bit but it was never so concerning that we threw a bunch of resources at at trying to figure it out we just you know kind of maybe Anyway, celebration would come and go so quickly and be so frantic that we never had time to really. <laughs> well, and um, it's bottle conditioned anyways too, right? That too. And that was right. another kind of thing that was hiding the hop right. creep. Okay. Right? Yeah. So we were looking for where all these fermentables were coming from. And, you know, we, I don't think we ever answered it, but we just kind of left it on the table because it wasn't an immediate concern for us. Um. But yeah, I am sure that as a whole, well, here's the other piece too. Sierra Nevada, up until more recent times, we were all whole cone brewing. Yeah. The hop creep occurs at a, at a much higher extent when you're using pelletized hops or hops that have been ruptured and broken up. Oh. And, uh, so yeah, whole cone. Uh, dry hopping actually creates a lot less hop creep. You extract less of the enzymes uh, into your liquid. So it's really more like that long, slow, you know, well into months into the package that we'll still get a little bit of creep. We never saw this problem during the tank cycle in the cellar where we had a bunch of off flavors. That's more of a phenomenon that happens with like T90 pellets and a lot of like the modern IPA brewers experienced that problem, you know, very seriously, I would say. Right. Right. Um, okay. So uh, you mentioned that hop creep happens with cold side hop use. So dry hopping um, Sierra Nevada, you know, you mentioned you, you were aware, I guess a, a little bit of the issue and you do a lot of dry hopping. You're famous for your hop torpedo and everything. So how do, mm -hmm. how do you manage or how, not just how uh, Sierra Nevada specifically, but how, how can breweries manage hop creep? Um, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to like stack ideas to minim minimize the impact. There is no silver bullet if you're if you're using T90 pellets, I think you're you know you're at high risk. Uh, one of the ways we we kind of get around uh, the major effects of hop creep is by using concentrated pellets um, or just lupulin powder, which kind of subtracts a lot of of like the leafy material and the stem material. It subtracts any seed content that were in those um, those hops. And actually, the seed is known to have quite a bit of the hop creep amylase enzyme as well. So, so yeah, that that's one technique is just to use like the T45 pellet 
or I guess some vendors have, call them cryo pellets or CGX. Um, but typically they're, they're known as a T45 pellet. Um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, aside from that, uh, you know, I, I can't really come Pasture. up with too many other solutions. Vinny Chalurzo right? from Russian River and I give a talk on hop creep in March of 2023 at the California Craft Brewers um, conference. And yep. we had a whole slide or two outlining uh, ways to mitigate hop creep. Okay. Uh, M, do you have any questions? I do. So what should, like, if I'm a beer drinker, what can I do? So if the issue is the issue accelerated by like temperature should, I know that I should keep my IPAs in the fridge, but I mean, should I really make sure that everything stays cold or is that not helpful? Or keep, is it going to keep it cold? Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Colder. Yeah. Cold is always better. Is there For anything sure. else? Yeah. Is there anything else I should be doing or customers or beer drinkers just in general? Drink a lot more of it and a lot higher <laughs> throughput. Just drink so, as fast you know. as possible. You heard yeah. me first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those chug videos are for a reason, everybody. No, no, not that. <laughs> joking, you know, joking, in moderation. But... Please drink in moderation. No, obviously. <laughs> I'm team moderation. Um, yeah. Um, no, I, you know, not really keeping the beer cold is the best thing, I would say. Um, a lot of us yeah. like have take home growlers and crawlers and things like that. Make sure you're, you know, so those are inherently going to have a little bit of oxygen, uh, during the filling and capping process. So make sure you keep those cold, um, and then drink them within, you know, the stated time, um, a day or two. Uh, right. Okay. Fresh is yeah. best. Got it. No, Fresh I, again, best. no no silver bullet. It's a natural product. Uh hops are a natural ingredient and you know, and that's what makes it part of what makes it so great. So it's uh it's an issue people yeah. just need to be aware of, but mm -hmm. uh, and uh but otherwise uh uh all the more reason to drink cold and fresh. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool, awesome. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Sure, anytime. Okay, M, what was your big takeaway? That you're, well, again, one, you're a huge nerd. <laughs> and that this is, um, I'm really glad that we did a show that are for the dons of the world. Because <laughs> this show was like the nerdiest thing we've ever done. Because it's, I, the thing that I took away from it was the, the crazy, aspect of science in beer is something that cannot be ignored no and we're still learning like i mean yes the hop creep thing came up you know in 1896 but really it was under the radar for the last you know 100 years until until a few years ago um and and, and also with yeast like i mean we've been using these yeast strains for hundreds of years and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden we have this issue and it's a scientific thing like how do we yeah, there's there's still new science in brewing, which is what uh, that's that's me. the thing that I took away. Like, there's still so much to learn, and so much that we're learning with the fact that what are we using four ingredients, right? And when people have been brewing for what, you know, thousands upon thousands, yes. millennia, I don't know, like yeah. a long time, yeah. and we're still talking about these things. We're still learning about why they happen. Um, it's it's really really cool. It also makes me excited about the future of beer and how what things will happen, you know, with science and what we'll discover and what new things and new styles will come out because of it. It's just, it's cool. It's very cool. It's really nerdy, extra nerdy. So the Dons of the World, this episode is dedicated to you. Uh, I would like you to do a Pints and Panels of uh, Hop Creep. Uh, I need your help because again, I failed <laughs> chemistry and I, 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 I took away enough where now I'm like, oh, okay. But then- my science, my my bad science brain immediately forgot. So we can draw that together. That would be okay. wonderful. <laughs> uh, and everybody else, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And if you're feeling generous, please visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. If you have questions for the experts, please email us 
podcast at allaboutbeer.com. That's also the email for feedback, suggestions, or to inquire about supporting this show through advertising. M, how can people reach out to you? I am at Pints and Panels across all social media, and my website is www.pintsandpanels.com. How about you, Don? I am at the Dawn of Beer on X, Threads, and Instagram, and people can drop me an email at dawn at thedawnofbeer.com. Here's a word from our sponsor, but keep listening for a teaser about our next episode. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCode.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. M, if you could pick any topic for our next episode, what would it be? Hmm. You know, I really would love to talk about cellaring beer. Wow. Do I have good news for you? Our next episode is about cellaring beer. What? Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's good. Great news. Yeah. Uh, yes. A quick shout out to at Wandering Shame on X, who actually suggested this episode topic. And if you have ideas for an episode, please reach out to us. We love to hear from all of our fans. This show is produced by All About Beer. Visit allaboutbeer.com for articles, notes on this show and others, and to connect via the newsletter and social media. Cheers. Don's a huge nerd. <laughs>